Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com. From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters, how suppressed are the voters of Texas? A new book breaks down which states make voting too hard. How are some families impacted by the Uvalde massacre living with the grief and the aftermath? And children who are abused don't always know what's happening to them is wrong. Some school districts have a program to teach kids how to protect themselves, but there's a problem. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. We have frequently reported that it is difficult to vote in Texas, and that's a fact. And in the past, we've been able to tell you that this is the most difficult state to register and cast a ballot in, but that's no longer the case. That's not because Texas has made it easier to vote, just the opposite. It's just that some other states have now surpassed Texas in their efforts in voter suppression. A new book takes a look at the problem of ease of voting in 50 states. It's called The Cost of Voting Index in the American States. I spoke with co-author Michael Pomonte. In our book, we analyze uh, the laws going back from 1996 to 2020, and our questions are, what causes states to adopt uh, more restrictive laws? So we looked at um, the populations of these states, and we came to find out that um, the difficulty of voting within a state is statistically linked to the percentage of the Republicans that are in the state legislature and the um, size or growth of the minority population within the state. So we actually see that as uh, the percentage of Republicans increase and the percentage of minorities or the growth in minorities, those states tend to make voting more difficult. That sounds like you're talking about Texas, because that's what we've seen here. Yes, uh, Texas is uh, one of those states uh, that has continued to make voting more difficult over time. Um, And we do know that Texas has a large Hispanic population. At the end of our book, we looked at the previous states that were covered under the Voting Rights Act, uh, Section 4, that required states Uh, to get pre-clearance from the federal government. And unfortunately, Texas has showed us that um, even though um, they no longer require pre-clearance, they would still benefit from pre-clearance because they continue to make voting more difficult. um, And it has the consequence of making that voting more difficult is that those minority populations um, participate less Um, and have lower representation at the uh, state legislative level. So in this cost of voting index, you're ranking the states according to the difficulty to vote. Is is that right? Yes, it is. And so who's the worst state? Where does Texas fall? Well, Texas is not the worst state. Um, That actually falls to Mississippi and New Hampshire, uh, Mississippi is 49, and New Hampshire is 50. But 
Um, we also identify, uh, we also say that Mississippi um, also should um, continue to receive preclearance. And New Hampshire is um, a state that previously was not included in the preclearance under uh, Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act. But we suggest that they have made, we find that they have made voting significantly more difficult um, over the years that they now uh, would benefit from uh, re, uh, needing preclearance from the federal government for changes to their election law. And where did you say Texas falls? Texas falls right around 46. Okay. Not, not a glorious position, but not the worst. Not a glorious position. No, not the worst. Um, but they have consistently stayed among uh, the most difficult states in, in uh, voting. And, uh, you know, uh, politicians have argued that they've been passing these laws to help prevent uh, voter fraud. And we actually take a look at that as well. And we find that uh, states that make voting more difficult have no reduction in the cases of voter fraud uh, compared to states that make voting more accessible. So uh, the number of instances of fraud within a state are completely random as it relates to uh, the type of laws that those states have in place. The only thing that's statistically linked to uh, instances of fraud is the um, competitiveness of uh, races at the, on the ticket. So as the races become more competitive and we are unsure of the election outcome, uh, that spurs people to commit voter fraud and election fraud. Mississippi ranking the last on this list. I, you know, we've had this conversation before, Michael, and Texas was had come in last. And I've always wondered why Mississippi didn't come in last, given the fact that it has no early voting system at all. Uh, absentee voting doesn't exist. But do you look at the other issues regarding voting, like the availability of, of voting locations, even the voter intimidation that may happen, uh, which is kind of difficult to gauge because it's uh, unlawful and not easily tracked, but we know it happens in, in many places in Mississippi? Right. Unfortunately, um, we are unable to um, include those things in our measure, obviously, because intimidation um, is not a, a policy that is put in place, right? So that is an action among uh, citizens uh, that we cannot include in the index. Um, we did consider uh, the location of polling locations. However, that varies widely uh, throughout the state where we typically see um, urban areas having uh, more voting locations and rural areas having fewer voting locations. However, we do take into account um, states that have reduced the number of polling locations significantly over time. Um, and, you know, the reduction of polling locations in itself is, isn't nefarious. Uh, states and localities do this on a regular basis because they can no longer uh, use uh, locations that they were before or they've condensed uh, voting locations or in some instances a lot of states have started to move to voting centers 
that allow individuals from a much larger area come to a specific location uh, at their choosing and then voting uh, that way. Are you able to weigh the effectiveness of a vote? Because if a person is in a gerrymandered area, um, you could argue that their vote doesn't have as much strength as as in an, in an area which had been independently and fairly uh, district. That is not something that we include in the index. Yeah, because it'd be difficult to put that in the aggregate. Exactly. What we're doing is we're kind of balancing out all the laws um, at the state level. Um, so when you start talking about specific districts, our index does not get uh, that uh, pinpoint specific in the cost of voting in those uh, smaller areas. It's interesting that you do track New Hampshire as a worst state in the nation to to vote according to your index. People seem to think that New Hampshire is the a, a great place for democracy, particularly given its large size of its uh, House of Representatives. Why is New Hampshire needing some help here? What we see with New Hampshire is that they have largely been absent to adopt new types of technologies and new policies that make voting um, more accessible for their citizens. And when they do adopt uh, election legislation, it does tend to make voting relatively more difficult for their citizens when uh, they have adopted uh, the few, few policies over the years that we've studied. We look at what states have a ease of voting and what states are difficult to vote in is it the main issue of mail-in ballots? Is that the central tentpole when it comes to deciding what's hard and what's easy? Yeah. So when we look at the um, the most accessible states for voting, they have all adopted automatic voter voter registration as well as all mail voting. And the interesting thing about this is that you know. Um, some Republican uh, legislators and representatives have in the past made suggestions that they believe that easier voting um, or more accessible voting is a benefit to Democrats. And when we looked at the difference um, in the difficulty of voting between 2016 and 2020, we actually find that when states make voting um, more accessible, um, President Trump actually outperformed in 2020 compared to his 2016 um, election results. So in other words, as states made voting more difficult, Joe Biden actually outperformed Hillary Clinton's uh, 2016 numbers. So that sounds counterintuitive to many. I mean, you argue, you say states that make it harder to vote in benefit President Biden. But then earlier you pointed out that it's uh, states that have a, a, you know, a, a, a Republican legislature and they're trying to limit the vote of uh, voting minorities. Uh, so how is that? How is that happening? Yes. So uh, what this indicates to us is that these, uh, by making voting more difficult, Republicans are actually making it more difficult for those that would support 
uh, them and their candidates. They're preventing their supporters from going to the poll. So it would actually be a benefit to Republicans if they made voting more accessible because uh, the individuals that um, would support them would have easier access to the polls. And then the people who were targeted by the legislation to limit voting, they become highly motivated to vote and they're able to overcome, in, in many cases, those restrictions. That is uh, one thing that um, we have suggested needs further research. We have um, definitely seen, like, places in Georgia, um, you know, has uh, garnered a lot of attention for, you know, its actions to try and make voting more difficult. But we see a lot of um, support and uh, entities going in there trying to increase the turnout of these minority groups. And surprisingly, um, you know, earlier when I was talking about the states that um, previously needed preclearance, uh, according to our analysis, uh, Georgia has made significant uh, progress over the years making voting more accessible. So we actually suggest that Georgia is a state that no longer need, would need preclearance. The cost of uh, voting index in the American states, is this book basically a, uh, an argument that we do need a restoration of the, the, the full Voting Rights Act? Absolutely. Michael Pomonte is a research associate at State's United Democracy Center. He is a co-author of the book, The Cost of Voting Index in the American States. When a gunman killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary in Uvalde in May 2022, the lives of those families were changed forever. But there are also the parents of those children who survived the shooting, and they also have to live with the aftermath. TPR's Kayla Padilla talked to one family whose child survived the shooting and how their family dynamic has changed since. Zayon Martinez was only eight years old when an 18-year-old gunman entered his school and killed 21 people. The trauma of the tragedy continues to impact the now 10-year-old Zayon and his family. His dad, 39-year-old Adam Martinez, and his mom, 32-year-old Raquel Martinez, are trying to help him heal, but this is new to them too. I think sometimes we might be more stressed out than other days and we don't realize that that's what it is. Like back there, you're still pissed off about it. Adam, in particular, has had a busy year and a half. Earlier this year, he was banned from Uvalde's school district meetings for questioning a new police hire. Then he threatened litigation and the ban was lifted. He started a podcast called Karma, which is focused on the families of the 21 victims, and he's pushed for more transparency and fitness training for Uvalde law enforcement. Almost everything that we do revolves around May 24th. So many things have changed. We've lost friends because we were, <clears throat> we were some of the ones that stood up for what happened. Adam has been determined to make Uvalde better and safer, especially for the children. He was initially seen as a troublemaker and he lost some friends along the way, but now he's forming solid relationships with local leadership. Adam spends nearly all of his time advocating for those 19 kids and two teachers and their families. As a result, it's affected his own family dynamic. 
There's always something going on. There's a city council meeting. There's a county commissioner's meeting. There's volunteer opportunities. So just being busier, it puts a little bit of strain on the family, that's for sure. Adam and his wife Raquel welcomed a daughter just a few months after the shooting. Raquel said she was used to Adam being around more, but she understood why he needed to be elsewhere in the community. Like when he started, I just had the baby. You know, and he was always gone. Like, he would help out a lot. I just wasn't used to that. Usually, parents who lose children to gun violence are at the forefront of calling for accountability. Some of them become activists and political candidates, like Kimberly Matarubio, who just ran for mayor of Uvalde. Matarubio lost her daughter Lexi in the Rob tragedy. Or Fred Guttenberg, who lost his daughter Jamie in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in 2018. He's since become an activist against gun violence and has authored two books. For Adam, whose son survived the shooting, what happened on May 24th deeply affected him. He's been advocating for the families ever since. I've heard it like one time, like, hey, well, did you lose somebody? And they know I didn't lose somebody, but to them, it's not important. Like, yeah, I lost somebody. Like, we lost like a lot of innocent children. Like, is that not? It's a very, very sensitive subject. His son, Zayon, is a different person now than he was before the shooting. For over a year, he, he didn't sleep in his room. He was sleeping in our room on a recliner or uh, I'd be on the recliner, he'd be on the bed or whatever. Zayon's also scared of the dark now. I guess that's that trauma of when he was for 45 minutes in that room, maybe, where it was just dark. Adam and Raquel said that Zayon is sensitive to loud noises. He's hypervigilant about locking doors at home, and he's more fearful than he was before the shooting. Say, for instance, there's like a noise outside, or like the dogs are barking, and he's like, I want to go check. And he kind of like, no, 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 don't go, Dad, don't go. Kind of just freaks out which that never happened. He was more like, okay, I got a bat. But now it's more like just fear. Raquel said that since the shooting, she's learned to cherish every moment with her kids and take a lot of pictures. Because that's what I've heard from families because you just don't know. And that's all they have left now is just pictures and memories. She recalls the months following the Rob shooting. The house went from being loud with the sound of bickering siblings to silence. The house was silence with no arguments, like just holding each other, hugging, spending time with each other. There is just no fighting. 10-year-old Zayon just returned to in-person school this fall. This is his first time back since May 2022. Up until now, he had been attending school on Zoom. In a prior interview with Adam, he told me that Zayon didn't feel comforted by the fact that there were more police at school because, quote, they wouldn't go in if something happened. Now, Zayon says that he feels a little bit safer, and he's glad to see his friends again. It feels good, I get to say hi to them again, after a long time of not being in school. As for the shooting that took place at his school, Zayon says he tries not to think about it. Um, I just, like, try to forget about it. I don't really think about it. I just, I just try to forget it, and I'm happy to be in school again. Zayon's favorite subject is math, just like his dad. He loves multiplication and division. And he hopes to be a professional soccer and baseball player when he grows up. The Martinez family is trying their best to move forward while keeping the memory of those 19 children and two teachers alive. 
Adam, Raquel, and Zayon are all in therapy, and there are plenty of moments of normalcy in this family. The playful nature of their family is slowly returning to the house, like when Zayon explained his favorite YouTube show to me, which is about funny sibling dynamics, I think. The older brother is always mean to the little brother. <laughs> And it's he so does annoying. different accents, and the second I turn it on, she's like, turn it, th turn that thing off! <laughs> <laughs> you have to listen to it, because then you'll understand. Though his life has been changed since the shooting, Zayon tries to live like every other kid. He has big dreams, he loves his family, and he cares about his friends. His parents say he's a protective big brother to his one-year-old sister. Adam continues to attend every community meeting there is and fosters close relationships with the victims' families. Raquel is holding their own family together and raising several children as best she can. The Martinez family is thankful for each other and relentless in their pursuit to help make Uvalde a safer place. I'm Kayla Badia in Uvalde. Advocates say children need to learn about domestic violence and other forms of abuse to protect themselves. And one of the best places to do that is in the classroom. But there's a law in the way that's putting the most vulnerable kids at risk. KERA's Caroline Love has the story. Jamie Wright didn't know that what was happening to her as a little girl was wrong. I thought that everybody was touched, and I thought that everybody's mom screamed out for help. No one taught Wright that she deserved better until she was an adult. But today, there are educators who are having that conversation with children at school. Alexander? Laura Norman's classroom at Daggett Middle School in Fort Worth is covered in laminated American history posters. But her students didn't learn about the Revolutionary War or the Alamo last Tuesday. The school counselors taught a very different kind of lesson instead. Talk about abuse. What are some forms of abuse? Okay. Then we're going to talk about what is a trusted adult. The counselors outlined the different types of abuse, physical, emotional, neglect, and sexual. They also told the students to listen to their inner voice when something felt wrong and went over examples of trusted adults. Wesley says a trusted adult would never ask a child to keep a secret. But their message didn't get to all of the kids. A few in Norman's class were sent to the library before the counselors started their presentation. Students need parental consent to get abuse prevention education under Texas law, and the parents of the kids sent to the library didn't give theirs. The state doesn't require schools to educate students about abuse, and Molly Voiles from the Texas Council on Family Violence says requiring parental consent makes them less likely to do it. She says that can be harmful. When you create parental opt-ins or opt-outs, it's most likely to impact the children with the highest vulnerability. The abuse prevention training can still make a difference for the kids who don't hear the lesson. Christina Galanis from Fort Worth ISD says the students who do attend the training can be good upstanders, people who intervene to help their friends. It still protects those that don't have that knowledge because they may you know, lean on a peer or confide in a peer. So it gives that herd immunity kind of uh, mentality. That's what happened to Wright. Her sister confided in a friend when they were young. The friend knew that the abuse wasn't okay and told her parents, who told the school. The abuse was no longer a secret, but Wright still faced challenges because of it. She dropped out of junior high school and got pregnant at 14 by a man who was twice her age. 
She says she would have had healthier relationships growing up if she had the right tools. You can't tell me, had somebody taught me that, especially in my formative years, that I'd be navigating life in this hard space that I'm navigating in right now. Today, Wright shares her story about how she survived domestic violence as a child and adult to give others the voice she didn't have. Language makes a difference. William West from the Texas Council on Family Violence says giving kids the words to describe the harm they're going through empowers them to seek help for the rest of their lives. When you can have that education, it really works to to break intergenerational cycles. It works to increase help-seeking behaviors. It works to decrease isolation. And all of that starts when students learn about it in a classroom like Ms. Norman's at Daggett Middle School. If you have questions, concerns, please come and see us. If you have questions, you can bring them to us Wednesday. Okay? It's a lesson the Texas right Council on Family Violence says every student in the state should learn. But for now, school districts don't have to teach it. And the districts that do teach it have to ask for parents' permission. I'm Caroline Love in Fort Worth. Feral hogs are part of life in North Texas and for much of the southern United States. The invasive species loves one neighborhood in Arlington in particular that sits close to the Trinity River. KRA's Kaylee Bruchard has more on the unwelcome visitors. Paula Panchak loves the nature near her home in Arlington's Parkway North neighborhood. There's plenty of trees on her property and her home backs up to a forested part of River Legacy Park. I have one, two, three, four, five, six bird feeders beside the fence towards the woods, and we have gorgeous wildlife to watch. But when the weather cools, Panchak and her neighbors have to look out for one of the animals they don't want to see. <coughs> Feral hogs are found along the river and in the woods. Sometimes they go into neighborhoods to root up soil in search of food. Panchak says the acorns in her yard make it a target. Oh, it looks like someone has come through with a rototiller. They literally destroy the yard. Hog sightings in Arlington are most common between October and March. David Davis is the animal services officer in charge of the trapping program. My goal is to push them all the way back to the Trinity River, which is kind of the boundary of of River Legacy. And to capture them when they don't stick to the banks. One October morning, he found four in the city landfill, and spotted a couple more roaming the park. Davis trapped 25 hogs last month in the city. He says that's an unusually high number for October. It's against state law to release hogs after capture since they're an invasive species. The city sends the hogs to a meat processing plant. That money goes back to buying more traps. Animal services personnel like Davis will go scare away pigs if they're blocking a trail to avoid run-ins with humans. For the most part, pigs aren't really that aggressive. But they are wild animals. So with them being wild animals, they're unpredictable. And they're hard to manage, mostly due to how they were brought to the country. European settlers introduced them to North America about 500 years ago. Pigs came to the Western Hemisphere on Columbus's second voyage. That's John Tomechek with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service. So everybody knows 1492, blah, blah, blah. 1493, the dude shows up with pigs in the Caribbean. Pigs tend to like colder climates, but so many people brought in pigs that the hog population took off anyway. In 2016, hogs were in 35 states. That's about double the amount of states where hogs were found in the early 80s. 
Tomechek says pigs tend to grab people's attention when they're uprooting gardens, but feral hogs pose a threat to a lot more. We have issues of pigs getting in and contaminating water sources to where they are now uh, under Clean Water Act regulations. They're no longer safe to use. Water affects all of us. Pigs will affect the things that affect all of us. Tomechek says people should contact their homeowners associations and city services when they spot hogs. Davis says he gives out cards to people when he responds to sightings and asks them to send photos. I try and maintain contact with those people to give them updates on what I'm doing to try and keep the the pigs from moving into the neighborhood. And the cards are getting around neighborhoods. Kelly Sazama and her husband say they felt out of the loop over the last couple years after some changes to hog program staffing. Sazama says she's feeling better after Davis reached out to her neighborhood and she noticed traps were being baited more often. It's going to be a forever thing. We don't think it's going to disappear. But, you know, it's just nice to have a give and take with the city. And with five more months in feral hog season, there's likely more give and take in store for the city and North Arlington residents. I'm Kaylee Broussard in Arlington. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past Texas Matters episodes on our website at tpr.org. And you can find us wherever you get cool podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.